Hello, this is the Drucker Forum Report. I'm Peter Day, and this is a podcast about what's in the air and up for discussion at the 9th Global Peter Drucker Forum in Vienna in November. The theme this year is Growth and Inclusive Prosperity, and I'm continuing a recent conversation with one of the forum's main speakers, Professor Carlotta Perez, who has a particular long-sighted view of the world, as we heard in part one of this podcast. Economics has divorced itself from history, from technology, from society, from institutions. It's completely abstract. It's like physics, but society is not like physics. Carlotta Perez is a writer, academic and consultant with a host of international affiliations and contacts, and her particular speciality is economic cycles, long cycles often lasting 50 years or more, which are so easily ignored by markets, politicians and business people with much shorter time horizons. As she noted, we're now in the middle of a new and very disruptive economic long cycle which is still developing. And part of that development may be the rise of the robots. That's very worrying for many people who see their jobs threatened as the money and the rewards flow to the owners of the capital who invest in robots. Well, we better look at history again, because that is exactly what has happened each time. You bring the new technologies, they increase sometimes even double productivity, they reduce the amount of people necessary, they change the skills, either less skills or more skills, it depends on which technology. Mass production actually reduced the skills, reduced the number, increased the salaries, which is very important. Which Henry Ford did in uh, 1912, I think. He raised his, he doubled his pay, I think, for the worker on the production line in the Rouge River plant because, and of course, he couldn't get the people. They weren't staying, were they? Because he couldn't get the people and because he had this idea that the workers had to buy the cars. He said that, and that was exactly what happened after the war. With the welfare state and with the strong unions, which were legalized, and I would say almost on purpose, everybody raised salaries, which was good for everybody because there was more demand. And in fact, that is what the welfare state did. Imagine without unemployment insurance what would have happened if people bought houses, cars, and everything on credit. If for five months they had no salary, they would return the keys of the car and the house and everything else. So even those things that were done after the war, not only raising salaries, but also having the welfare state complete the demand for the mass-produced goods, we wouldn't have had the boom if we hadn't had that. And the most important thing, in the manufacturing, which was the area where the, most of the productivity increases, also in agriculture, of course, the mechanization of agriculture, but just in manufacturing. Manufacturing in the U.S. from the end of the war to 1970 multiplied its real product three times. It increased its labor 25% only. You know how much labor increased, how many workers increased, how much labor increased in the other things, in retail, in construction, in government, in services of all sorts, five times. So that was where the labor came. And you know why? Because there is a change in lifestyle that provides the low productivity jobs. So the high productivity jobs with robots, with artificial intelligence and all that are indispensable in order for average productivity in a society to increase. And when it increases, it allows high wages to be paid 
in the lower productivity jobs. So in order to get a decent society, we need artificial intelligence, we need robotics, we need all these things. We shouldn't fear them, but we need to create the conditions for the other jobs to multiply by many. And they would be jobs, would they? Some people argue that to keep the consumers going in the new age of the the robots, we will need something like a basic income. Even Americans are arguing for a basic income to keep the corporations going with consumers who have money to spend. That's one way of looking at it, and I definitely approve of basic income. I think it's indispensable. Every technological revolution in the second half has had to change its version of the welfare state because, and there has been one each time, by the way, there was the people's budget in England and there was a progressive era in the US and, you know, in the Belle Epoque and so on. Every time there has been some form of protection, not only because of humanitarian reasons, also for peace. We have all this populism going on now. You can't stop it if you continue making people feel they lost hope and they have no jobs and they have no future and their children are going to live worse than them. It's impossible to have peace and the future growth if you don't do that. But basic income is not just for consumption. In fact, I think basic income would only cover like food and various other things. But the main thing about basic income is that it allows the flexibility that everybody's crying for, the flexibility in labor. Because if you have self-employed people, if you have zero hours contracts, if you have Uber type employment, if you have all those things, you need to change the welfare state. The welfare state was designed for jobs for life. That's finished. No more jobs for life. And people have to be educated again and again and again. They've got to be able to have some income with which to do. They're re-education, reskilling every time they do. They is a person with zero hours contract employed or unemployed. They're neither, they're both. And therefore, they cannot get unemployment insurance. And we see this through the rearview mirror of the past, the regulations, the rules, the taxations of the past, don't we? Absolutely. And that is the huge problem. People are still stuck, those that defend the state and both and those that are against it are both thinking of the state of the 1950s, 60s, and 70s. They do not imagine a completely different, modernized, agile state that really jumps to the future and creates a better future. You've used the word state, you've used the word governments maybe not being up to the mark now. I want to intrude into this pattern of booms and busts of cycles, the idea that this time it's different. Maybe I shouldn't do that. This time it's different because of globalization, and globalization being a global world, migration, people on the move, people with the same tastes all over the world, people on the same network all over the world. This time it's different. (laughs) Well, first of all, this is a second globalization. So we can look at the one of the Belle Epoque to see what, what a globalization situation is. But basically, the thing is that we now have to think of the state in many levels. We need the national state to define the territory in which the global economy is going to move. What do you want to attract? What do you want to retain? What do you want to reject for your territory? In fact, a very important thing is that the national global corporations are no longer national at all. They don't care about the population of their country. Right now, many American companies and many European countries are much more interested in the markets of China than in the markets of their own countries. So and they, they can arrange their own taxation and their own, to they, a certain extent, uh, regulation. Yes. So all those things are problematic. So we need 
supranational power. And that is the most difficult part of the future state. Nobody wants that. But you have supranational finance, you have supranational companies, you have supranational economy, and the states are not supranational. They have no, there is no power that's supranational, no power to tax companies that are putting their money in the Bahamas. It's really a completely absurd situation where you're trying to control units that are not in your space. But we also need, as is fortunately already happening, cities to govern themselves, local governments. We need to go all the way down and all the way up. We need national, supranational, and also regional, local, and even super local, municipal and really small, because every little space in that global space is going to be global. There's something special about every single corner of the world, and the ways of governing have to be different. What each stage, what, what each level does has to be different. So we have a big job ahead. It's going to take time. It's going to take leadership. It's going to take ima need and imagination, boldness, a real desire to transform society for a positive sum game. Good for business and good for society. Right now, we have good for finance and maybe good for the military. But bad for everybody else, really, because production companies, except the, the big high-tech ones who don't know what to do with their money, they fortunately, they're doing some, like everybody, like every time in history, they're doing foundations. So instead of paying taxes, they will do good themselves. Okay, that's better than nothing. But they are not helping the transformation because everybody in business is convinced that markets do it. You know why? Because markets did it during the early technological revolution. So there is this faith. You know, we had those two prosperities. They were bubbles. They were not prosperities. The one in the end of the, two, of the 1900s, of the 20th century, and the one at the beginning, they were bubbles. They were not prosperities. Prosperities are the golden ages. Prosperity was the 1950s and 60s. That's a prosperity. The Victorian boom was prosperity. So we can call it prosperity for a few, but we cannot call it prosperity for everybody. Is all this stuff that frustrates you here and now, at the moment, a familiar part of what happens at this post-boom, post-crash part of the cycles you studied? Well, what does happen is that things get so bad. Of course, the last time there was a world war. Yes, that's what I fear, that in a state of economic unrest, then things are sometimes, in awful quotation marks, sorted out by war. Fortunately, it has not always been war. Fortunately, that's not a recurrent feature. So I am a bit calmer about that. But what does have to happen is some sort of horrendous crisis. Because capitalism, for some reason, doesn't seem to be able to predict and solve the problem before it comes. It only solves the problem after it has a huge crash, after it has a huge problem. If right now we have more populist leaders coming into power and the center-right and center-left lose power, Maybe they'll start thinking and maybe they'll realize, hey, we must have done something wrong. In fact, I always wonder if a CEO in a company had the results that the austerity policies of the European countries and of the American government, if they had those results, slow, feeble growth, unemployment, low productivity, no investment. They'd be taken over. Taken over, of course. How could you leave them do that? And yet the state, oh, get out, get out, do nothing, get out, do nothing, get out, do nothing. Just open more, open more, give the private sector. And the results are horrible. So many countries with 40% young people unemployment, 
countries with more than 20% unemployment. How could you accept that? How could you accept that those people are lost? University people that have been paid for, you know, the whole society has created these skills. They run away. They go to a country where they could get a job. You lose, you have a brain drain. It is a terrible situation. It is impossible. However, if we have another financial crisis, which I think is in the cards, you just have to look at what's happening in the even the U.S. stock market, apart from the bond market and all those crazy things. If you had a financial crisis, they would have to do something because I don't think they're going to solve it with quantitative easing. If we had, as I said, more of these populist leaders winning elections and taking over, if people started unrest, started becoming more violent even, that's not impossible. Maybe people will start thinking and maybe they will listen. Maybe they will look at history. Maybe they will start doing what would need to be done now. Are you talking about a need for capitalism to modify itself, or are you talking about post-capitalism, something replacing the capitalist system? Not at all. No, I think capitalism is perfectly capable of solving itself, which it did. What's post-war boom but capitalism turning around? And every time that there is this situation after you have all the technologies there, you have all the infrastructure, you have all the possibilities, do you know how many revolutions we still have to do? With these technologies, not new revolutions for another wave. No, no, in this wave, in this cycle, in this deployment period, we need to transform education radically. We have a revolution to do in medicine and in health in general. We have a revolution to do in the construction industry. We have a revolution to do in materials. In There are so many things. And you know how we can do it? By having the state give a direction to innovation and investment that will be profitable for business. Because what happens every time after the crash is that finance hides away and it just creates a casino and it lives in that casino and will, it will not take risks with the real economy. So the only people that are innovating today are the people who have their own profits, who are the Silicon Valley giants. They're the only ones. If you look at everybody else, it's very difficult for them to get finance to take risks with innovation. So the innovations that have to be done will only be done if the playing field is tilted by government. And the way to tilt it, in my view, is to think of smart green growth. That's the direction. The post-war boom had two main directions, suburbanization and the Cold War. And those two directions guided practically every policy that the state made and it guided how the state spent, and it guided how people invested. People innovated in anything that had to do with the suburban home and the automobile. So you had everything. You had plastics, you had frozen foods, you had the, the, you know TV, all those things that had to do with the suburban home, and then, of course, all the military things for the Cold War. Today, we need to turn the environmental problem into the solution for the social and economic problems. And that means that we would prefer services rather than products because we have not only climate change, we also have scarcity of materials, scarcity of water into the future. I mean, with all these 
billions of people coming into consumption. If, if China does get everybody, of course, that's a lot, and, and India and the whole, and if, and if the rest of the world were to develop, which would be wonderful. If we had true, full global development, there would be demand for capital goods of all sorts. There would be demand for everybody. But made from new things in a new way, a new economic way. We haven't got the raw materials to give China the standard of living, in quotation marks, the consumptive standard of living of the United States, do we? No. In fact, I wouldn't call it the standard of living. I would call it the style of living, which is very different. We can have a very high standard of living with services, creativity, everything less and less materials, and also something very important. We need to change policies so that durable goods are durable. And we have the technologies to make them last 100 years, and we could upgrade them with spare parts 3D printed on demand every time. And we could have, instead of having five refrigerators per person per lifetime, we could have five lifetimes for each refrigerator, people's lifetimes, so that we change radically the whole concept of even possession, we could rent it all. We could do like Amazon. So you rent and you change as many times as you want. And in the end, somebody just entering the consumption ladder can pay one pound. And we would have massive employment in maintenance, installation, changing, 3D printing parts, upgrading, all these things. Plenty of people at the countries where consumption is taking place. So that would mean employment in the advanced world, which is everywhere. But I mean, it's one of the sources of employment. We need to change materials because, of course, we need to have special materials, which will be not only durable, but very appropriate for each thing. Many things have more material than they need because they don't use a very well-specified material. And we have so much technology to develop yet in terms of special materials that are suited, and also environmentally friendly materials, water chemistry, biochemistry, all these things can change radically the way we make things and what we make them with and the circular economy and the recycling and the reusing. There are so many things that are already there to transform our consumption patterns. So we would have very high standard of living with better. It would be a different good life and it's been every time. Now, you've just set out a vast agenda that needs to be done. Are you an optimist or a pessimist given your long cycle view of the world? I'm a pessimistic optimist. <laughs> I am an optimist because I know it can be done. I am a pessimistic one because I know unless it's really understood, it won't be done. And I don't think there are many conditions for it to be understood. There are several things that have happened. One is that because the financial world is not only in control of all the money and of all the things that are happening, but it's mainly in control of politicians, unfortunately. The level of lobbying and the power they have is so enormous. Their interests are much more prominent in the decisions of politicians and the interest of the production economy. And somehow, unfortunately, again, the Silicon Valley giants, instead of understanding that they have to help shape a global economy that will help everybody and that will be a positive sum game for business and society, they're just interested. They want government out of the way. They're libertarian and they want to do everything themselves. They think they're going to solve every problem by, by having some foundations or, or doing some innovations. And they don't don't understand that their proper role is to transform the whole world, the whole economy. If they were really bigger thinkers rather than this little narrow thing, it would be wonderful. 
when Charlie Wilson of General Motors was offered a job in government, and there was all this, you know, business, he represents business. Back in the 1950s, this was. That was. And then he said, what's good for General Motors is good for the U.S. and vice versa. And they made a song about that. Oh, yes. Well, the thing is that today what's good for the world economy is good for ICT and vice versa. And what's good for the ICT industries, what's good for them, but they don't understand what's good for them, which is that the whole world should develop. And in order to do that, they have to support government to do the right thing and to transform itself. And it's not just adopting computers or software. It's much more than that. They've got to restructure their organizations. They've got to be much more in connection with people. They've got to be more creative, less rule-based. All this bureaucracy, all these thousands of pages of rules, it's ridiculous. It should be something simple that's done in a computer automatically. And there are so many things that can change. And they even have to use artificial intelligence Government has to think of itself as a very dynamic social institution that takes care of the whole of society by doing it intelligently in the most effective and efficient way. And business has to understand that that's their role, but that means giving a direction and that means changing everything. The tax system is all wrong, apart from being completely bureaucratic. It's just taxing the wrong things. Of course, it's very easy to tax value-added. They're so happy about how smart it is. But instead of taxing value-added, which is a tax on profits and people, maybe you could tax materials, energy, and transport. That would change the whole thing. And if you would favor rental rather than possession, if rental paid much less than anything you pay, or services rather than goods, just things like that. I know it sounds crazy, but it can be done seriously. And with that, you would immediately change the priorities of innovation towards saving materials, energy. And it's not just because of the climate. It's not just because of materials. It's because it would make better business. It would be a positive sum game. It would be good for business and it would be good for society and it would be good for the planet. So that is a completely different way of approaching and government could change every single policy to shape the playing field. And then, of course, you have free markets on that field, which is tilted, not on the old playing field, which is equally tilted. Right now, the market is tilted towards the military and towards the old technologies, towards the old mass production methods. That's what it's doing. It's not favoring change. It doesn't even know what to do with the new things. It doesn't know how to regulate them. The state is lost. And of course, companies are not helping. They could help. They could say, we would do this or that, if they knew which way they were supposed to be going. Many thanks to Professor Carlotto Perez from University College London and many other places. A striking book about all this is called Technological Revolutions and Financial Capitalism, The Dynamics of Bubbles and Golden Ages. And she's got another book on the way. And she'll be speaking at the Global Peter Drucker Forum in Vienna in November. I'm Peter Day. This is the Drucker Forum Report. More podcasts coming up soon.